Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I'm Marsha Barron at Indiana University. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Professor Kerry Jenkins about the philosophy of love. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? So I actually started out working on philosophy of mathematics and especially knowledge of fundamental arithmetic. So that was my my first philosophical passion, understanding how we know things like 2 plus 2 equals 4. So my, my PhD work I did at uh, Cambridge in England, and then I had a, a few jobs around different places, including uh, the Australian National University. I was there for a year, and in the States, and then uh, eventually moved over to, to Canada. Since I've been here, I've, I've worked on various topics in metaphysics, most recently the metaphysics of love. So I'm looking into the nature of romantic love, trying to understand questions like how much of it is... Uh, projected onto the world by us and how much of it do we just find, as it were, in nature or in our uh, biology. What was it that inspired you to study the philosophy of love? No, it kind of, it was sort of a confluence of philosophical interest in these metaphysical questions about the nature of things in general and realizing that the nature of love is a really challenging one of these metaphysical questions. It's been it's been challenging philosophers, at least since Plato, uh, trying to answer that question. And also realizing, as I started to come out as a polyamorous person, so in more than one romantic relationship myself, realizing how people reacted to that, which was, in, in some cases, very uh, negatively, and how that kind of uh, was an attempt to reinforce the social constructs of what people expected, which is monogamous love. Um, Can you define polyamory? I can give you the gist of it. It's a word that different people use in in different ways, but it's a form of non-monogamous romantic relationship. So basically a form of ethical non-monogamy, which means not cheating, (laughs) where everybody has agreed to be in more than one loving relationship at the same time, uh, or just to be open to that. So some people who 
would identify as polyamorous are open to the possibility but might not be in relationships at that particular time. How is that different from free love? That's a very good question. Free love is in some ways a a product of its era, and polyamory is also a product of its era. And I think of the era of free love as being a little bit earlier. So um, this is a term that you can read people like Bertrand Russell talking about. So Russell, when he was writing about monogamy and marriage um, and things like that in the first half of the 20th century. The idea of free love was a challenge to the standards of monogamous love that were around at that time. Polyamory is in some ways more flexible than free love. So it doesn't necessarily imply a particular structure that everybody will follow. So not necessarily total freedom, for everybody to have whatever kinds of relationships they're looking for, which some people read into the notion of, quote, free free love. But something that is agreed upon in a variety of different individual ways by the people in the relationship. So some examples of what what would have been called free love and some examples of polyamory might look exactly the same, and so they might coincide to that extent. Other versions of polyamory, so for example, if one partner wants to be monogamous, just wants to have one partner, and... Um, their their uh, partner is polyamorous and has other partners. Um, it would be it would seem I think a little weird to define that as a kind of a free love because in a sense <laughs> on one on one side it's not open. But that would still be a, a one configuration of, of polyamory. How did you come to write about polyamory from a theoretical perspective? Did your interest start from your own personal experience? I suppose they were, I mean, I, I think of it as the confluence of things. So there was a kind of trigger that was my, my personal experience. It made me want to sort of delve more into philosophical literature on the subject, which much of which I found pretty unsatisfying. I think, I think that the history of the philosophy of love has in some ways tended towards being a little bit limited in its scope and its purview. I wanted to read, so this is partly why I started reading beyond just the philosophical literature to understand more perspectives on the philosophical questions that I wanted to, that I wanted to address. So it was, it was, yeah, that was my, my personal experiences were kind of a, a motivator. And I realized that I had a lot of toolkits, as it were, conceptual and philosophical strategies that I might usefully bring to think about these questions and try to understand them better. And um, the more I the more I started doing that, and the more I started reading from other disciplines about the nature of romantic love, it, it just it grabbed my attention. And then just sort of, um, since then, it's just uh, it hasn't let me hasn't let me drop it. Intellectually speaking, how do you see the philosophy of love as a conversation? Yeah, so this is something I often say. I I, I don't think of the philosophy of love or really any kind of philosophy, to be honest, as a monologue uh, whereby one person figures out some truths and then uh, dispenses them to other people. I think if that's what philosophy looks like, that's kind of a failure condition. When philosophy is working well, it looks like many voices participating together in exploring and trying to understand, trying to answer questions, throwing around ideas, acknowledging differences of perspective, 
possibility of disagreement and being able to make progress in that kind of space. And so this is part of why I've tried to look beyond not just the, the discipline of philosophy, but beyond academia altogether for, for sources of inspiration for, for my work and also for you know the kinds of conversations that I want to be having around this topic have led me more and more into the sphere of public philosophy. Because of the scale of these questions and their practical significance, this won't, it won't fit within any box, uh, not, not the philosophy box, not the academic box, nowhere. It, it, this is a subject that is, that is everywhere and that is of significance to, to people's real lives. And so, so I'm trying to sort of get into more and more kinds of conversations, um, because that, for me, is, is when philosophy is going well, that's what it looks like. Do you regard polyamory mm-hmm. as just another lifestyle or something more political? Living polyamorously is making a political statement about ownership, do you think? Uh, I think this probably depends how you do it. <laughs> so there are certainly ways of living polyamorously that really don't challenge the status quo in any way and don't necessarily involve any kinds of political consideration. So, for example, if one lives uh, in a polyamorous configuration, but it's entirely in secret, and let's say gender norms are maintained very solidly, so there's a, a fairly kind of standard patriarchal polygamy kind of situation, that needn't necessarily be much of a political statement. Other people live and experience polyamory as part of a life that includes various sorts of political thought, maybe even political activism. And that can include things like talking about ownership, um, thinking about its connections to love and relationships. And so for me personally, when I think about what it means to be polyamorous, I'm very interested in the, the pushback that I get that tries to reinforce monogamy. And that pushback very often comes in a form that is is full of misogyny. So I think that the history of monogamy's use as a strategy to control women in particular as a form of property, reproductive livestock, in effect, that history is still, its shadows are still with us. And to talk about polyamory in a way that pushes back on that history um, it's something that I am very interested in doing, and that does make it a political move. And it's something I'm in a, an unusual position to do, which, you know, because of being uh, an openly polyamorous uh, woman, and also, I mean, this is not irrelevant, but also a woman who's in a, a fairly privileged position. So I have, a, I have a level of, for example, job security, and I live in a place where I can talk about these things fairly openly, and safely, relatively safely, and and also that I that I present as a fairly boring-looking <laughs> professor, you know, not 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 what people's um, stereotype of a person who's let's say a, a a rebel or whatever might look like. I think in all of these ways, it it puts me in a position to to make political statements about the kind of polyamory that I practice. And a lot of other people who are polyamorous themselves or who are just interested in it use polyamory as a way into considering questions about political things, not just 
the history of romantic love's connection with, with ownership, but also its connections with things like gender, the norms that we have for people in relationships, what we expect from men, what we expect from women, all of those sorts of things. It can be a focal point for those conversations if, if we choose to, to take it as one, but not everybody does. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Kerry Jenkins about the philosophy of love. Now, you just mentioned it before in your last answer, but can you talk a bit more about polyamory and gender relations? Like, for example, does it have an impact on who does the washing up and cleans the toilet? (laughs) Um, Not necessarily, not necessarily. Uh, So it is possible to be polyamorous, conform to gender roles, normative gender roles. So, you know, for example, to be in a polyamorous relationship where, let's say, there's one man and two women and the women clean the toilet and do the washing up and the man earns income, etc. But it is also... By the time, it is also quite likely that by the time one's had enough conversations to think about entering into polyamory in a, a considered way, one may well also have started to have conversations about gender roles within those contexts. And indeed, it tends to be, this is just fairly anecdotal, but it tends to be in my experience that polyamory serves as a kind of flipping of certain gender expectations. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, when they first hear of the idea of being in non-monogamous relationships, imagine that that is something that men want and that men pressures their female partners into agreeing to. And actually, uh, my experience is that's not necessarily how it goes. Quite often, it's something that women want as their own preference, as their own choice. It's something that's agreed upon between people. And so, uh, in that sense, polyamory can quite often challenge people's gender preconceptions, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So you're not automatically going, certainly it's not going to automatically solve the problem of, of who does the, the housework, um, just just deciding that you're going to, to be polyamorous. Those are fairly independent questions, but once you're challenging one thing, you may find yourself challenging some others as well. Yeah, you are quite critical of the way many lesbians and gays feel they have to portray themselves as normal and conform to monogamous relationships. So could you talk a bit about the the huge fuss around the gay and lesbian marriage thing? So what I am certainly critical of a certain kind of dynamic, and this is this is this social pressure that is imposed on people who are radical in any way, which can include ways that they didn't choose to be radical, um, but just are are defined as such from the outside. Um, And that would include queer people, anyone who's behaving in a way that is is non-normative, that is not conforming to the so-called normal standards of the society that we're currently find ourselves living within. What happens to people like that is there is an immense pressure to show that in every other way, they are conforming as much as possible. So I'm not criticizing, for example, a gay couple for feeling that pressure and responding to it in in the way that, that you're describing, whereby they will emphasize that they do conform to monogamy in order to 
try to push back against the, the, the pressure from outside social forces that's trying to tell them that they're doing something wrong. Um, but I do think that there is a really unfortunate uh, consequence of that, which is that in, in attempting to reinforce the status quo in other ways, such as by sort of bringing queer love into the realm of normal, I'm using my scare quotes here, although you can't see the normal-looking marriage structures, what that really is doing is reinforcing the power of the, quote, normal marriage structure. Uh, and so now everybody is subject to it, right? Not just the straight people, everybody. <laughs> so that can be a problem, right? If you, and again, not, and this, is not a, this is not a criticism of the fact that people had to do that, and I see why some of this is necessary in order to make progress on certain issues, but the, the, um, one of the upshots is throwing non-monogamous people under the bus, and that's what I want to push back on. And I think ultimately... It has to be possible at some point to, to stop doing that, right? To say, actually, there are many, many different ways people practice love. Not even, not all of them are straight. Not all of them are monogamous. Not all of them are um, not even romantic, right? Certainly not sexual. And people just are very different. Different people are very different kinds of, of things, and they have very different kinds of ways of, of relating to each other. Um, and so my ultimate... You know, my, my version, my vision of the utopian future for this, which I I go back and forth on how optimistic I am about it, but uh, it, it's one in which relationships are really built on a kind of um, choose-your-own-adventure model, right? So you can pick the things you want to make that relationship conform to out of the standard norm set, and any of the things you know you don't want, you don't pick those ones. And ideally, we could just move away from this idea that there's one standard way to do things and accept that what's actually normal here is variability, variation. Yeah, it's a really good point about opening your mind up to doing things a little bit differently. But I'm very interested in your view that philosophy has isolated itself from real life concerns. Is is this because of the way in which men dominate philosophy? I mean, this is complicated. So, I mean, academic philosophy, the kind of thing that I, that I trained in, that I studied, that is still very male-dominated, statistically speaking. And when you look at who are the influential figures, who gets cited, who gets taught. And so, yeah, that can be, that has an influence, it has an impact on what kinds of topics are considered to be central, considered to be priorities, and how those topics are addressed. One of the things that I'm not so sure about is whether to think of philosophy itself as limited in that same way that the academic conception of philosophy as a discipline has been limited, has allowed itself to be limited. So I think philosophy itself is actually thriving just in a lot of other places. And so, you know, plenty of the philosophy that is done within academic settings is also very good. And I don't in any way mean to dismiss that, but I do think that there has been, there has been a tendency to to exclude some kinds of topics and certainly some kinds of voices from the conversation. And the erasure of, of women's voices, and basically of, of anyone who's not a, a, a fairly wealthy white man from, from those conversations, is a huge, huge problem. And it's not only that it's affecting 
issues that impact real life, although that that may well be one of the impacts. But I mean, there's there's just so much of interest that is excluded if you only listen to and if you only study and read the work of one kind of person. The word polyamory contains within it the idea of armour, love. Is there a philosophy of romantic love? Yes, there is. That's largely what I'm doing. So I'm very interested in romantic love specifically and in trying to sort of understand how we have separated it off from other kinds of love. In many ways, we put philosophy, uh, so we put romantic love on a kind of special pedestal, right? Um, where for a lot of people, it's come to be seen as normal to treat that as the most important kind of love, that it's meant to be the, the goal state for your life to find the one, right? The one true romantic love relationship. And that has lots of consequences that, that uh, some other philosophers are also talking about. One who I'm pretty influenced by is uh, Elizabeth Drake, and she coins the term amato-normativity to refer to this separating off of romantic love as special, um, which has the effect of, of disfavoring every other kind of loving relationship. So people who go through their lives in uh, maybe loving family relationships or maybe have a lot of close friends or other, other forms of ways of relating to people that are meaningful to them, that are significant to them, but don't have a romantic relationship, there's a kind of stigma attached to, to doing that, right? There's some kind of sense that you've somehow, you're weird or you've somehow failed, but those kinds of relationships don't count, right? Those, those people don't get invited to the wedding with you or, you know, invited to the work functions with you in the way that a romantic partner would be, and that would just be expected by default, um, so one of the things that I think philosophy of romantic love can do specifically is get into questions like that. Why is that happening? Is it right to treat romantic love as, as special in this way or ethical mistake? I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the second side of that. I think that is an ethical mistake. I think romantic love is very valuable, but so are all kinds of, of love. Um, and it's actually, in, in a lot of ways, it's quite problematic that we've sort of singled romantic love out and um, made it into a, a sort of singular goal for everybody. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that just because you have sex with someone occasionally, why should that put your connection with them above other people who you've just had a platonic friendship with and uh, a lot of the other friendships are, have gone back you know, 30 or 40 years with a lot of people, but they might just have, have been with their romantic or sexual partner for a year or two and you're right, all of a sudden, this person, this new person that's come into their life is actually given this grand status, aren't they? Mm-hmm. That is very normal to, 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 treat, to treat a romantic relationship as, yeah, basically taking precedent, taking priority automatically over everything else. Um, and, you know, for some people it might do, and that's fine, but the risks are... That we, that we treat that as a, a, a standard model that everybody's life should conform to. Um, and one of the things I keep, keep wanting to push back on is that idea of a, a standard model for, for a good life. Um, that is just not how humanity works. You know, there are lots of ways to, 
to live a good life. There are lots of ways to experience love. There are lots of ways to experience sick love. But there are lots of ways to experience love that are that are not romantic. And those don't, it's not right to discount those, to, to treat them as inferior, just because they don't conform to what we are seeing all around us in the greetings card industry or the, the engagement ring advertisement. Um, there, there are reasons why a certain kind of love has been placed in this in this role as the ultimate goal for a good life. That I think once once you once you start appreciating what those reasons are and start challenging them, they they don't hold up to, to philosophical scrutiny. Do you have any future study plans? Yes. Yeah, so I'm starting to work now on a project that I hope will become a a second book to follow up on what love is and what it could be. Um, and this is looking at love's connections with happiness and with agency, so with things like control and responsibility. Um, in effect, this kind of comes out of the, the later, the closing sections of my first book where I talk about the idea of choosing your own adventure in love. There's a, there's a sort of broader about crafting relationships as a creative enterprise, but also as something that people do deliberately, rather than thinking of love solely as something that just happens to you, as a, as a bolt from the blue that then leads to the happy ever after of the fairy tale. There's something about the, the, the creative process of crafting love in relationship, the collaborative process with other people. And so my, my, my new work is trying to get into what that is, how it works, and what its connections might or might not be with happiness, which has also been subject to a lot of philosophical scrutiny. And the idea that happiness is something that, you know, you just have to passively hope for and, and wait for doesn't really work, but nor does aiming at making yourself happy seem to work, right? And this is, this is sometimes what's called the the paradox of happiness, the paradox of hedonism. If you just try to be happy, it doesn't make you happy. But if you do something that's meaningful to you, that might make you happy as an upshot. And even if it doesn't, you did something that was meaningful to you. Um, and I kind of want to export some of those lessons for the way that we think about love, right? Instead of a kind of bolt out of the blue that just feels really good, maybe we want to think about it, at least you know, in reflective moments, as something that we are crafting, something that we're creating, and maybe the good feelings will kind of come as a byproduct of that, of, of doing something that we find meaningful. And even if they don't, we'll still have done something that we found meaningful. So that's sort of where, where the work is headed next. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking to Professor Kerry Jenkins about the philosophy of love. Well, thanks very much for listening and do stay tuned for... Are you looking at me?